0: In our last episode. At trial, Art Newman's betrayal was expected to ensure convictions for Charlie Berger and Ray Highland, leading the men's attorneys to refuse to present evidence or alibis that would contradict Newman's testimony. Newman and Highland received life imprisonment, while Berger was scheduled to hang on October 14th. A Night of Another Sort, Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger, by Gary DeNeal. Chapter 28. The Mystery Couple in the Ford Coupe. Cold and cloudy, the Sunday afternoon of December 12th, 1926, was the perfect time to see a movie. To do just that, Jesse Kramer, 22, of West Frankfurt, and his sweetheart, Jenny Murray, also of West Frankfurt, drove to nearby Benton in his Ford Coupe. Jenny wore red mum on her coat. In an area known as Sugar Creek, just outside of their hometown, an Airflow Chrysler passed the couple. It wasn't
1: driving very fast, but I noticed somebody had smeared mud all over the back window, but then cleaned off a square place,
0: Kramer recalled. And
1: I remarked to Jenny that it looked like they intended to make a peephole. The car continued on, and I
0: soon dismissed it from my mind. Arriving at the movie theater on the southeast corner of the Benton Square, the couple realized they had already seen the picture. Rather than turn around and go home, the driver suggested they journey further to West City to see where Joe Adams's home had recently been fired upon. Then, as now, the deeds of Berger were discussed and magnified. Anyone who read newspapers then knew that Adams, the corpulent mayor of West City, had allied himself with the rum-running Shelton brothers, Carl, Earl, and Bernie, and that by so doing, he had won the undying hatred of the Shelton's former friend, but now devoted enemy, Charlie Berger. Time was when Berger and the Shelton's together were warring against the Ku Klux Klan. The Shelton's began to realize that Berger, friendly though he was to strangers, Was not above holding out slot machine profits from business partners. Following several killings in the summer and autumn of 1926, the Berger-Shelton gang war made the headlines throughout the Midwest. Thanks to an armored car, a truck converted into a tank, and even an airplane that dropped bombs on Berger's roadhouse, shady rest, the affray had a keystone cop's atmosphere that was somewhat belied by too many gang-related murders. When Berger became convinced that Joe Adams was keeping the steel tank portion of the Shelton's armored truck in his garage, trouble was assured. Seeing this, a wiser man would have left the country. But, being as bullheaded as Berger, Adams chose to stay and take his chances. Besides, he might be lucky enough to catch Charlie in his gun sights. Three or four blocks east of the Adams' house, Kramer passed a customer of the mercantile store where he worked. This man was on the south side of the street, walking west. Seeing a familiar face, the pedestrian threw up his hand in a wave. The fellow behind the wheel did the same. Again, this was a little thing, hardly worth mentioning. Equally unimpressive were the two young men who stood on Adams's porch, talking to someone who stood inside the door, possibly Joe himself. The two men, one 17 and the other 19, wore khaki-colored sheep-lined coats, a common item of winter gear in those days. Driving past as slowly as possible and keeping the car in low to prevent stalling, Kramer pointed out the house where the men were talking. No sooner had he done so than the sound of gunfire came from that direction. The figure inside fell. The assailants turned and jumped off the porch, one of the gunmen stumbled, got up, and ran behind Kramer's car, which was still moving very slowly. Remarkably enough, Adams's young daughter Arian chased the two until her mother called her back. Kramer recognized this fellow as Elmo Thomason. Elmo's brother, Harry, staying to the south side of the street, actually outran the Ford coupe, and in so doing also passed a fellow standing on the corner. Harry shot at the man's feet— then continued to run down the street, so fast that one could have shot craps at his shirt tail. Next, he crossed the street in front of Kramer, stepped in the middle of the street, and for one terrifying instant, pointed his pistol at the coupe. While Jenny ducked, Jesse, not knowing what else to do, threw up his hand to wave. Recognizing him, Harry did the same, then leaped aside and ran to the muddy Chrysler with the peephole. It was setting on the shoulder on the north side of the brick pavement. Behind the wheel was Ray Highland, better known as Izzy the Jew, a man Kramer had seen several times. After Elmo and Harry jumped in, the car took off at a high speed toward Christopher. Still not knowing exactly what to do, Kramer continued to drive in low gear. Part of his problem, believe it or not, was the curtain on the window. With a broken spring, The curtain simply could not be opened, and that was too bad because the young man behind the wheel, who had just looked down the barrel of a gun held by another young man scared half out of his wits, knew that Adams was supposed to have guards stationed around the house. These men, seeing a car with drawn curtains in daytime just after the shooting, might decide to shower the occupants within with machine gun fire. However, that did not happen. If not for the condition of the roads, he would have driven on to Christopher, from there to Ziegler, and then back to West Frankfurt. Instead, a quarter of a mile to the west, he turned the car around and drove back the way they had come. Although by this time several cars were parked at the site of the shooting, not a police car could be seen among them. About 30 minutes after being shot, Adams was dead the eyewitness behind the wheel urged his fiance not to tell anyone what they had seen. Ignoring his advice once back in familiar territory, she confided the news to a trusted neighbor. Under no circumstances, said this friend, was she to tell another soul outside her own family. This second warning coming so soon after the first made it very clear that her life and the life of her fiance depended on their keeping the secret. There was a catch, however. Kramer's face, and possibly his name, was known not only to the Thomasons but also to the pedestrian who had waved. It was this man, Kramer felt, who got word to state's attorney Roy Martin that someone down at the mercantile store had possibly seen the whole thing. Because Kramer worked at the store, which was owned by a Mr. Magat, the man on the street assumed he had waved to one of Magat's sons. Being close friends, Scotty, McGatt and Kramer were often mistaken for brothers. The next day at the mercantile store, Roy Martin asked to talk with Scotty. As luck would have it, the young man had an iron-proof alibi. On the late afternoon that Adams was killed, Scotty not only was in Harrisburg, but also managed to get into a scuffle at one of the restaurants. There was nothing to it, really, just enough to make the West Frankfurt youth memorable to the proprietor. With Scotty out of the picture, only Kramer remained for the state's attorney, Martin, to question, in his kindly but persistent way. I lied like a dog, Kramer admitted nearly 60 years later. Canny enough to know that he was lying, Martin listened to the cock and bull story about driving around in Johnston City that afternoon and not seeing one familiar face. Martin yawned. Later. Later. Kramer realized he should have brought in the name of a man later to be his brother-in-law, a true friend who would have backed up his yarn, no matter how implausible it may have seemed to a middle-aged state's attorney. Martin suggested he go home and think it over. They would definitely be in touch. Oh, he thought about it, and the more he pondered the situation, the more he realized the danger he and Jenny were in. Seeking advice, He called his good friend T. Mills Moore, at that time chief cost clerk at New Orient 2 Mine. Well, Kramer knew that Moore was on good terms with Martin, and that if anyone knew what to do, his friend was the man. Kramer and his brother drove to New Orient. After his friend confided the whole story, Moore advised that he come clean with Martin. He added that the state's attorney, being a man of his word, would see to it that Kramer's identity would not be revealed. The eyewitness was about to make the most important decision of his life. T. Mills Moore told his uncle, attorney Frank Moore. Without actually divulging Kramer's name, Frank Moore dropped enough clues that the state's attorney could begin to apply pressure. When Jesse Kramer finally told all, Martin nearly, quote, hit the ceiling. From the note alone, the one that Adams was handed by one of the Thomasons and that he was reading when the shooting occurred, the authorities could have guessed that the killers were brothers. Purportedly written by Carl Shelton, but actually penned by Burger gangster Connie Ritter, the message read, Friend Joe, if you can use these boys, please do it. They are broke and need work. I know their father. C.S. What made it even more incredible, Kramer said, was that the Thomasons were the only pair of brothers who were known henchmen of Burger. In return for his information, a promise was made to the eyewitness that he would not be called to the stand should there be a trial. As much for her own protection as for the need to work, Jenny got a job in Chicago. She stayed with a sister. However, her fiancé was still in West Frankfurt, working at the mercantile store by day and staying home each night, and thus in danger. Twice known burger gangster Harvey Dungy and another questionable fellow stopped by the mercantile store. Their presence was so ominous that one of the store's employees got it in his head that they were planning a robbery. Knowing too well why they were there, Kramer managed to slip out of sight. In time, Harry Thomason's confession was splashed across the newspapers. A once-defiant Charlie Burger was finally behind bars. Then came the trial. True to his word, Roy Martin never called Kramer to the stand, although on the first day of the trial, he came very near to breaking his word. Yes, he remembered well their agreement, Martin said, but it might still become necessary for Kramer to give his testimony behind closed doors, for fear Berger's attorneys might try to get Thomason's confession thrown out. Reluctantly, the eyewitness agreed. Who should he see in the judge's chambers but Harry Thomason, friendly as ever? Never mentioning the trouble he was in, the young gangster thought a moment, then said he remembered where they had last met. It was in front of Joe Adams' house, and your girl had a big red flower on her coat. I thought you were going to take a shot at me
1: when you pointed your pistol.
0: Kramer replied.
1: Yeah, but I saw who you were. I'd had a couple of drinks before we started to Benton.
0: At that point, Roy Martin entered the room saying Kramer could leave, that they were over the hill on Harry's part. That same day, Kramer saw Berger. Gone was the personality that had charmed numerous women and not a few newspaper reporters. In its place was the icy gaze of a killer whose freedom was at an end. For Jesse Kramer and Jenny Murray, the nightmare was over. They were married in November, 1927. Chapter 29. The Sympathetic Hangman. Early in August 1927, Massac County deputies learned that certain members of the Burger Gang had been seen at a resort near Brookport, Illinois. They relayed this information to Sheriff Coleman. On August 12th, the Williamson County Sheriff and a deputy drove to Metropolis. There they and the Massac County officers pooled their forces and drove to a patch of woods approximately six miles southeast of Metropolis and surrounded the fugitive's haunt. The next morning, Coleman told the world essentially the story Highland had given Boswell concerning the killing of Lyle Shag Warsham. The two prisoners, Fred Butch Thomason and Joe Boer, alias Clarence Bryant, were charged with Warsham's murder, along with Harvey Dungy, who was then serving a 10-year sentence in the Chester Penitentiary for murder. For Coleman, the capture of Thomason and Boer was a personal triumph. As early as June, he had heard the details of the killing from no less an authority than Art Newman, while the latter was in the Benton jail awaiting trial for the Adams murder. As recently as August 4th, Ural Gowan had given his version. That was crucial because, unlike Newman, Gowan claimed he was present when the killing occurred. With the convictions of Rado Milich and Charlie Berger a matter of recent history, Orrin Coleman had reason to believe one or more additional death sentences might be in the offing. Nearly two months passed before the trio went on trial. For Arlio Boswell, it was something of a rest period, a time to bask in the triumph of the Jones trial. He too felt the upcoming case would be relatively easy to win, since the evidence was clearly on his side. His sense of well-being was marred by another attempt on his life. With the exception of S. Glenn Young's massive concrete monument in the Heron Cemetery, the state's attorney was very nearly the most popular target in the county. This time, he was returning to his home in Marion from a meeting of the American Legion at Round Pond near Shawneetown. He had planned to follow some fellow legionnaires from Williamson County, but lost them on Harrisburg Square. More than 50 years later, too well, he remembered. I guess they had a little speedier car. I never did catch up with them.
1: Before I got to Crab Orchard, I noticed there was a car too close to me. But every time I'd speed up, they would speed up. Every time I'd slow down, they'd slow down. I got scared as the devil. I thought once of pulling off at Crab Orchard, but when I came to Crab Orchard, nobody was open at that time of night. I decided, well, hell, I've outrun them this far, I'll outrun them again. I started on through, and just as I got to the west, maybe a quarter of a mile out of Crab Orchard, this car came up along the side of me to pass. As I looked, it looked to me like a fellow was standing on the running board, and just as he got even with me, he began to shoot. I certainly went off to the ditch. They kept on going. The window on my side was down, but the window on the other side was up. There wasn't but one bullet that went through the car, and it went out the right-hand side. Nobody understood how that bullet failed to hit me in the head unless at the time I could have ducked down. Anyway, my car came to a stop right up on a concrete abutment. Well, I was scared to death, and I didn't know what to do, and I started my motor, and by damn, it ran. So I waited. I knew they'd turn around and come back, although I felt they felt they'd kill me. They didn't come back, thank God, until another car I saw coming. So I pulled on the road, and as it got to me, I rode right in front of the lights all the way into town. I went directly to the police station and reported it. Incidentally, I stayed all night in a hotel that night.
0: Looking back, Boswell blamed the burger gangsters, although he never had proof to back his suspicions. Next time. So? Militch began tearing the letter into pieces, but he kept talking. I want to say to you people here that the man sending me to the gallows, Arlie O. Boswell, is the man who had Lori Price and wife killed. So?